All right, let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for gathering us together as family this morning. Thank you for truth that's set before us, meant to set us free. Father, what a privilege this is. May we never become familiar with it, but embrace it for what it is. It's your grace on full display, Father, motivated by your love. Father, we pray for those in the congregation that can't be with us this morning. And we pray for those still lost in this world that are without hope, that they be humbled. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a morning like this a reality for each of us to enjoy as individuals, but also as a congregation, Father, as we fellowship. We just ask for your blessings on this morning's message, and may it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, part 30, uh, Proverbs 17, Wisdom. Let's just jump right in. Let's go. Uh, we need to finish up our labor on verse 5 of Proverbs 17. So seven, Proverbs 17, 5, go there. By now, you should probably have some kind of a bookmark or something. Just throwing it out there. Not that I've mentioned it. Proverbs 17, verse 5. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. An awful lot to be said there. As we've noted, we've been on that verse for, I don't know, three messages probably, maybe more. At least three. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker, who, he who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. So on Thursday, the Spirit did a deep dive with us on, you know, the why. Why is it that anyone would do such a thing? It just sounds awful. When you read it on paper, it just sounds awful. And you have to ask, why would anyone do such a thing? And if we think about it, as we've been thinking about it, at the end of the day, since it's an unholy thing, it cannot be sourced from the new creature. If you're a believer in Christ Jesus, you know by now that you have a new creature in you. Um, that only wants to be pleasing to the Lord, that only can uh, orient to good things, that can only orient to God. That's the new creature. That's the, the essence of the new creature. It is not corrupt. That's the creature, if we would, that we take with us for all of eternity. And so it's fresh, it's pure, uh, it's ready to be pleasing to God. And so this sentiment, this thing that we see in verse 5, it just cannot be sourced from the new creature. Rather, it is most definitely something from the flesh. Most definitely something from the flesh. So if we think about that, when we think about the flesh in general, the baseline desire of the flesh really is quite simple. All the manifestations of this one simple fact we do read about in the Bible, but you also, if you're honest with yourself, can see it in yourself because we still suffer the flesh. 
uh, even as believers, certainly can see it in the world, which is filled with unbelievers. But there's really only one baseline uh, situation with the human flesh, and it's really easy to understand. It wants you, okay, I'm just going to presume this morning that everybody here is a believer. It wants you to look in the mirror and say this up here on the board. I'm better. That's what the flesh wants more than anything. Remember Tashuka, right? Tashuka, I'm better. As long as I'm on top, as long as I'm better, as long as I'm king of the hill, doesn't matter what it is. I mean, it can be as silly as this. Are you jealous? Mine's got nice uh, cross hatches, some plaid. I see yours is just drab gray. I see you, you, can't, you can only afford the paper ones. You think I'm kidding? You don't think people are that petty? Of course they are. Of course they are. They make issues out of anything. Oh, look at this. I use a Burt's Bees, not the CVS brand. Right? Because we're ridiculous. Everything's about being better. It's disgusting. Disgusting. That, but that is the human flesh. If you were to strip away the new creature, everything we know to be good, take God out of the picture, um, we'd be left with this awful thing called the flesh. And all it really wants to do is be better. But here's the deal. Your so-called, quote, victory becomes your judgment. If you become so-called better in your, in your own soul, you puff yourself up, your victory becomes your judgment. When the flesh's perspective wins, you lose. And for a believer, so begins your punishment. That victory becomes your judgment. That judgment becomes your punishment. Because God's not happy with any of it. As the Spirit pointed out on Thursday, this, quote, punishment from Proverbs 17.5, specifically for a believer, is something tied to our good conscience. And so we say, all right, so I get it. I'm going to get punished. You know, the flesh is awful. Um, Punishment in tow, guaranteed. But what does that punishment look like? Is God going to come down and hit us upside the temple with a big old hand? No. No. I've never been stricken by God physically, have you? I mean, in that sense. No. So this punishment, we have to go deeper on this topic. It's tied to our good conscience. And again, I'm, I'm in the realm of believers. Okay. So remember, by definition, a conscience is the faculty in us that is able to discern right from wrong. That's the value of a good conscience, is that we have this faculty in us that we're able to discern right and wrong. Now, a believer has been given what we could call a good conscience in the sense that 
godly thinking is now possible, which allows them to be able to understand righteousness and confess the truth about themselves. In other words, they're able to see the divine standard of God. They leave that creature credit standard where I'm better. They leave that thing off to the side. And they say, well, this is the divine standard of God. And therefore, I understand righteousness. And I confess, I agree with God that I'm either, by His grace, able to do something righteous, to think some righteous thought, or I fall below it. And that's all confession is, is relative to the divine standard of God. How do I measure up? And I'm not trying to, you notice I never said you can do better than God. That's what the flesh wants. The flesh always wants to be better. The best we can hope for is do anything good. Amen? <laughs> but most of the time, a lot of the time, let's face it, we confess that we fall below the standard. And that's a good thing. Because it's the only way we can actually elevate up to the standard is by the grace of God. That's antithetical to what the flesh thinks. The flesh thinks, oh, no, I don't need God. I'll just leapfrog everyone, including God, and I'll be good on my, on my own, by my own power. So all of that really is the economy, if you would, that a good conscience functions in. And so that's the value of having being given a good conscience. And again, don't make the or don't miss the distinction that I'm speaking right now about believers, okay? I'm talking about believers because here's the deal. The Bible says that not everyone has a good conscience in this world. You might say, is that true? Yeah, it's true. Not everyone has a good conscience. Go to 1 Timothy 4 verse 1. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, not everyone in this world has what I'm defining here this morning as a good conscience. What God would define, more importantly, as a good conscience. Not everyone has that. It's something that we need to make a distinction on between believers and unbelievers, right? So 1 Timothy 4, 1 <clears throat> Let's just establish the fact that not everyone has a good conscience. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through this insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Okay? Whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. And this is just contextual stuff, right? In verse 3, during that time, uh, these people with seared consciences, they forbid marriage and they required abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And so there's some context there. But nonetheless, we're focusing on verse 2, whose consciences are seared. So the Bible gives us examples of people with consciences that are seared. Up here in the board, cauteriazzo is the Greek word. And if you're in the medical profession, you already know what the English word is, where we get the English word cauterize from. 
But that's what seared is in the original language. Cauteriazzo means to brand or sear with a red-hot iron. Figuratively, cauterized, which destroys the spiritual nerve endings. And so if you would take a really hot iron and press it on your fingertips, your fingertips would literally melt. And it would kill all the, um, the nerve endings. And so from henceforth, you wouldn't be able to feel anything because those nerve endings would be shot. They'd be cauterized. They'd be toast. That's what happens to some people's consciences. They're basically cauterized. So, again, if you've ever seen a cauterized skin before, it is a really good depiction of what the Bible says about a person whose conscience no longer has spiritual nerve endings. That's the conscience, right? There's no regard, no feeling, no discernment for spiritual things. So we can conclude that there are folks that do not have a good conscience. Because to have a good conscience, remember, a good conscience is one that can discern between right and wrong. Well, if you have no feeling, no sensitivity, you wouldn't know. You can't perceive anything to start with. So how are you going to tell what's right and wrong? Again, we can conclude that there are folks in this world that do not have a good conscience. And it's analogous to a person whose sense of touch or feeling has been lost due to cauterization. Stated more practically, this means that they aren't able to discern what is right or wrong. Now, I would argue that I've, I've not known many people um, that are blatantly uh, seared like this. Um, but they're out there. But nonetheless, they're not able to discern what is right or wrong. Whether or not something they are touching is good or bad, beneficial or harmful to them. So let's look at one of the most descriptive passages in the Bible on this topic. It's a very, it's a profound illustration of this type of person. Go to Romans 1.22. Romans 1.22. It's a profound illustration of this kind of person. And we also see what happens when a person gets to the point where they're cauterized where their consciences are cauterized. What does God do? Well, look at Romans 1.22. Here's a perfect example of what he does. And we shouldn't shy away from this. Romans 1.22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. 24, therefore, God gave them up, and I'm going to give you the original in a moment. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Up here in the board, God gave them up. Gave up is from paradidomy. It means to give or turn over, hand over from an example, to deliver over with a sense of close personal involvement. So God says, I'm, I'm seeing it all. I'm your creator. I know everything that's going on here. I'm literally going to take this activity forward. I'm going to hand you over with full knowledge. Actually, it's as a result of. In other words, if you know the context of this passage, you know that God 
has tried. God said, you're without excuse. You know me. You're without excuse. You persist in this evil. And so your conscience is now seared. I hand you over. So with a sense of close personal involvement, to hand over, to give or deliver over, to betray even. That's from Strong's. This means that God handed them over to their own desires. It's a type of, for lack of a better term, it's a type of abandonment. Uh, If you really ponder it, it's frightening. To have the holy God of the universe abandon you that way. Say, okay, you're done. I'm just going to let you go then. You want it your way? You will now be a walking proverb. I've warned you over and over and over again, and you persist, and you're making choice after choice after choice that is against my will for you. So he says, enough's enough. Have it your way. I will hand you over, and then I'm going to have my spirit write about you. And I'm going to record instances of your lives for people who actually do care. And you're going to become a walking proverb of what it's like to resist and reject your creator. That's what we see in Romans 1. God gave them up. So again, it's a type of abandonment that is truly frightening. I mean, this is the holy God of the universe saying, I'm done trying to save you from yourself. I'm washing my hands of you, in a colloquial sense. I'm done. And it sounds like strong language or even, you know, ungracious, like, oh, I thought God till the end. What about the guy, you know, the, the thief on the cross, blah, blah, blah. Obviously, his conscience wasn't seared to this point where God had handed him over. There's a difference, my friends. Right? It's an indictment on those creatures who have first abandoned God. And it's, it's like that analogy I gave you on Thursday with the kid who says to the teacher, you gave me an F. You gave me an F. And the teacher responds, no, I simply gave you what you deserved. You were basically asking for it with the amount of work you put in. You abandoned your studies long before I abandoned my hope for you in this class. I'm a gracious God. I gave you every opportunity and you were without excuse Without excuse. And since I'm not a liar, that's a fact. You are without excuse. You chose this route. You're getting what you deserve. So it's similar here in Romans 1.24. He says, again, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And again, that's from paradidomy. It means to give over, turn over, to hand over in a personal sense. Why? Why would he do that? Well, we have a little more clarity on this. Look at verse 25. Because 
Why would I do that? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And for those of you who are newer to the faith, whenever I use the term creature credit, I'm referring to Romans 1.25. Whenever I use that term from the pulpit, creature credit, you know, this is where I get it. It's Romans 1.25. It's that baseline desire of the human flesh to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Why? So that the creature can be elevated. That's what it's all about. And that's the baseline, I'm better thing from the human flesh. It's all the same. What we see here is the drawn-out conclusion of a life dominated by the flesh. That's Romans 1. A conclusion of the life dominated by the flesh, which makes sense, too, since the human flesh is naturally antithetical to God's will for his creatures. I mean, it makes total sense. If you were to, you know, take the human flesh and, and, you know, at birth and just set it on a vector and say, go, this is what it, where it would go unless it changed, unless God changed the course through salvation. This is, the, this is the end of the flesh. This is the end of the vector, that vector that the flesh always points to. In brief, God says, you know, welcome to life. I'm your sovereign creator. And the human flesh says, I'll be my own God and my own judge, so I won't be needing your sovereignty. Ow! That's the human flesh. And once a person's flesh has advanced to the point that is depicted in Romans 1, God says, okay, have it your way, but just know your decision is your judgment. Just remember, like the teacher example, you chose this. Just remember that. Don't say I'm unfair at the end of this. Like some people try to say about God even today, right? How can a fair God blah, blah, send somebody to hell? Don't do that. I made sure you knew who I was. I made sure you understood the gospel with clarity. I made sure of all this. So don't blame me. This decision is your judgment. And oh, by the way, you will be judged. It's not if I get around to it. It's not mm, you will be judged. But this decision is your judgment. Do you see how it falls right back on the, 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 uh, the personal responsibility of mankind? I hope. He says, I'm going to give you a free will. It's good and it's bad, in a sense. The flip side is that if you choose against me, that choice is your judgment. But let us know right up front that it was your choice. And you will be judged. It's not a matter of if, it's just, you know, when. So when this happens between a person and God, then we have, we have what we see here. Look at verse 26. We'll read on. We see the same Greek word again, paradidomi. For this reason, verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men, the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, and this is homosexuality, obviously, 
in receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, here we go again, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God, they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Like, you know, a big party, right? Woohoo! Let's all stand in opposition to our Creator. And let's have a little party. And let's pat each other on the back. And that's why fools, right? It's that ship of fools phenomenon. Where you get a bunch of people that are acting stupid and you get them together, and then they do things terribly stupid, like momentum. It's like one plus one now equals three in terms of momentum, right? It's, they just plow on, and they're all about each other. Um, so you get a sense of the advanced stage of the human flesh here, and it's truly ugly. It really is just it's terribly ugly. Remember the opening principle, the spirit's developing here, um, is the ultimate desire of the human flesh up here on the board. It's all just about being better. I'm better. I don't want to submit to the Lord. Yeah, I know. I know. But I don't want to submit to him because I need to be my own God. I want to be my own God. I want to be the best on the block. I want to be king of the hill. I don't like the idea of, of 100% you know, uh, submission or surrender to another person. I don't care if it's God. I just don't want that. So eventually God says, okay, have it your way. And watch how you as a God perform. And look at that laundry list of things we just saw. All the awfulness of, of what and where that vector ends up. Because you know why? Because people suck as gods. Because we're not gods. We try to be a God, and we, we're terrible at it. And so we just read what happens to somebody who tries to be their own God. Again, the end goal here for the flesh is, I'm better. Your so-called victory becomes your judgment. When the flesh's perspective wins, you lose. That is your punishment. That's what the Spirit... You know, the, you realize the Spirit's being ginger right now. In a sense, you could be a lot harsher. Say, well, good luck in hell, dummy. He could do that, and he'd be totally accurate. I mean, Jesus said things like that. Weeping, gnashing of teeth, the whole nine yards. But he's not. He's trying to, like, instill in us a sense of um, reality. A sense of, and, and we're able to even pull on this, draw on this for ourselves. Because with our own flesh, we have little microcosms of this happening where we're punished for our flesh trying to get the best of us, right? So when the human flesh claims victory, it is an affront to the holy sovereign of the universe because that victory 
implies that it is over God. It's an affront to the holy God because that victory implies that it's over God. So, if you're proclaiming a victory over God, that becomes your judgment. You will be held accountable for that very thing. Why are you sending me to hell? You see this right here? You see all these times I tried to evangelize you, I tried to straighten you out, I tried to you know, give you the way that leads to life. You see all this right here and you said no. You said you wanted to be your own God. You said you wanted to be victorious in time. And I eventually said, okay, have it your way. But here we are. I told you you were going to be judged. You knew you were going to be judged eventually. You knew it. And still you chose to reject me. Here we are. You're going to hell. Hands down. No doubt. Stop fussing. You chose it. Enjoy. Enjoy. You know, that's the, I don't know about you, but it's the only thing that can help me sleep at night. When I think about hell, I weep. I don't want my worst enemy there. But then I think, God says, but wait a minute, bud. They chose it. And I say, thank you for the reminder. They chose it. I mean, it's horrible to think about, but the truth is they're exactly where they wanted to go, away from God. Okay. So again, if you're proclaiming a victory over God, it becomes your judgment. You are essentially posturing yourself against the one who created you. You know, good luck with that. Go to Philippians 2, verse 9. Philippians 2, verse 9. I mean, that's a, that's a wager you just don't want to make. Right? <laughs> and here's why. Like I alluded to earlier. You will be judged. It's not a matter of if, it's will. It's just when. Philippians 2.9 Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess. That means agree. Every tongue, not just believers, every tongue will be forced to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you see the finality of this? This isn't a, oh, maybe. No, 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 no. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Even the unbelievers. Arrogant proclamations of victory over God mean absolutely nothing. <laughs> Up here on the board, every knee should bow. This includes every intelligent creature God has ever created, both saved and unsaved, including the angels. This, my friends, is a fact. That's it. There's no other, there's not a, well, they just get to run off. He's, you know, no, 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 no. He's going to force them to stand before the throne and confess that he is Lord. They will have to. It's not a choice. So says Holy Scripture. 
Every knee will bow. Every knee will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Believer and unbeliever. There is no escape. When you, when you, sh- you, know, when you fling off God from your life, when you reject God, even when he hands you over because of a seared conscience, you're still under his sovereign reign. You are still going to be judged, and you will still be uh, absolutely confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You didn't shed him, in other words. There's going to be a lot of people with gaping jaws. The reason I mention this is to amplify our previous point up here on the board. I'm better. That's all it's all about. I'm better. Your so-called victory becomes your judgment. When the flesh's perspective wins, you lose. That is your punishment. As believers in Christ, we have the God-given faculties to fully understand the point on the board. As believers. As believe, if you're a believer, you say, yep, I get it. Especially given what I just taught, you might say to yourself, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, that's because God gave you the ability, the faculties, to be able to understand that principle. An unbeliever will not understand the point on the board, certainly not in the spiritual sense as we do. Go to 1 Corinthians 2.14. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. An unbeliever will not understand that point on the board. They might even contest it. They might say, God can't judge me. Your God can't judge me. They'll say stuff like that, right? Your God can't judge me. He's not my God. Have you ever gotten that one? He's not my God. That's the whole point. He is, though. Even though you've, you think you've shed him, you, you think that just by verbalizing, he's not my God, that all of a sudden all the, the judgment and the righteousness just goes to the side because you, your own little God, have cast him aside? <laughs> you think that's how it works? What a fool. A fool says in their heart, there is no God. That's Holy Scripture. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Up here on the board, I'll give you the amplified version of 1 Corinthians 2.14. But the natural, unbelieving man does not accept the things, the teachings and revelations of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness, absurd and illogical. To him, and he is incapable of understanding them because they are spiritually discerned and appreciated, and he is unqualified to judge spiritual matters. Doesn't that literally sound like a capstone of this morning's message so far? Right? The difference between having a good conscience and a seared one, even? This is the difference, you see? A person with a good conscience with the faculties given by God is able to discern right and wrong, is able to discern uh, spiritual matters even. So what the Bible clearly teaches us is that an unbeliever will not understand this key point. 
up here on the board, I'm better. An unbeliever will not understand this point. We just read why. Because they don't have the apparatus. They don't have, it's like asking, I don't know. It'd be like asking a car to drive down the street, but it doesn't have any wheels. It's like that. They don't have the apparatus. They don't have the motor. They don't have the, the wherewithal, the ability. And so an unbeliever doesn't understand this topic. They might even be so blinded that they go, but I am better. You don't get that. You ever run across that person? It's like, if you walk up to somebody who's got, you know, the bull by the horns in, in terms of worldly standards, and, and you say, you know, you know you're wretched, right? What? You know you're like way down here as an unbeliever, right? You know that you're destined for the lake of fire. What? I'm better. I'm better than you. Who are you talking to me? Look at me. I'm rich. You're poor. I'm going to mock you, matter of fact, me and my buddies over here. That's what you usually get. You get like some kind of mockery, some kind of like, pfft, right? The P-F-F-F-T thing. Pfft, right? That thing. It's like, pfft. Who are you? Like, seriously, right? It sounds kind of, it sounds funny, doesn't it? Because the Bible says, who are you, old man? But if you're your own God, you say to other people, who are you? Right? No? Anybody? Just saying that that's what, that's what the flesh does. I'm better. I'm my own sovereign. Who are you to talk to me about being lesser? But that's the flesh. Now, even though an unbeliever cannot comprehend this principle, since we still have a flesh, now this is where it gets real for us. Those, that's the polar end. I just taught you the polar end. The end point of living in the flesh only. But we still have a flesh in us, don't we? So we still have tendencies towards that end. We can still be on the, you know, the, 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 the good path, the way that leads to life, and you know, do one of these numbers, whoop, right? It's like a whammy bar and a guitar, you know, wow, right? Nobody? Right, Brandon? All right. Right? It's like you get off for a while, you come back. You know, you get out of tune for a while, but you come back. That's how you know you're a believer, by the way. If you, if you go like this, what, and you stay there, you're an apostate. That's a person who was never saved. They were just kind of going through the motions. Anyways, even though an unbeliever cannot comprehend this principle, since we still have a flesh, we can certainly relate to unbelievers when we are overcome by our own flesh. It happens. And Paul wrote about this reality to the immature believers in the church of Corinth. Go to 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1. Paul wrote about this to the, the church at Corinth. Oh, you guys like right there? Whoa. 1 Corinthians 3, 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as, spirit, as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now, his audience is believers, right? Brothers. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and, I, and another, I follow Apollos, right? It's the whole, you know, I'm part of this guy's gang, so I'm better than you type thing. Are you not being merely human? 
In other words, aren't you acting just like an unbeliever? Aren't you acting just like... And that is indicative, isn't it, of an immature believer. I mean, that's how you can kind of tell that they're immature still because a lot of their life is still dominated by the momentum that was built up when they were of the flesh only. And so Paul's just talking about the same thing the Spirit's talking to you about this morning, that it can happen to believers, that we can, we can veer off onto that vector for a while, and we can, look just, we can look indistinguishable in many ways, from the outside in especially, from unbelievers. Some of you are like, hey, that's going to be me today when the game's on. That's going to be me. I'm going to look just like an unbeliever. And so funny you mention it. I'm going to be hanging around with unbelievers. Whoa, that's the craziest thing, right? I just, I don't know how it happens. I keep finding myself in this situation. <laughs> I'm being funny, right? But that's what Paul's talking about. That's why the Bible says over and over, be careful who you run with. Right? Twice, Paul asks them if they are behaving like unbelievers. So, we know from Holy Scripture that even believers, especially immature ones, can act like unbelievers. Why? Because we all have a human flesh to deal with, a fallen flesh that remains antagonistic to God. That's why. And it's that flesh that says, bingo, I'm better. That's what it wants. I want to be better. If you really get down, you know, I've, not to digress too far, but I think about you guys a lot, right? I think about myself. I just think about life a lot. And at the end of the day, it's so easy. You know that old saying, six degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon? Anybody ever heard that? Like, anyways, it just means, you know, you can always get back to a, 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 a point. This is the point. Like, whenever I think about sin and I think about bad decisions that people are making or it's always this like if you just go back a, you know one layer two layer maybe three layers the most it's always this thing it's always the human flesh in them trying to be better well I did this thing because I wanted to feel and it's always feelings right I wanted to I wanted oh I wanted to feel better I wanted to feel better about myself what the hell does that even mean? You want to feel better about yourself. Let's just dissect that for a moment. You want to feel better about yourself. What does that actually mean? It means you're not what? Satisfied with the way you measure up to the rest of the fleshes out there? Isn't that what it really comes down to? You want to feel better about yourself? Because when you hang around with your buddies, you know, like after church, like I described, right? When you hang around with your buddies, well, they have a bigger house. They have a better car. Their cat is even prettier than yours. No, wait a minute. You ready? Everyone's favorite. Theirs has like a funny face on it. Mine's just bland. Everything. You don't, you tell, tell me the human flesh doesn't walk into someone's house and go like this. Oh, I love the bathroom vanity. Let's get a better one. Oh, I love, oh, your backyard's so nice. Let's get some turf. Hurry up. Do you follow what I'm getting at? Disgusting. At the end of the day, and, and you say, every time I hear something from someone, oh, I just feel like crap. I just feel terrible about myself. I feel, I, I, oh, you know, it's this big whiny story, right? And it's the same people all the time. Why? 
because you're still stuck in that system. You are still very much fleshly. The only reason you feel that much of a turd is because you're still thinking like a turd. Do you follow what I'm getting at? You're still thinking. You're still, your economy that you deal in is still the human flesh. It's that old take me out to the ball game blog. Remember that one? Wrong ball field. Someone always wins and loses in the world's ball field. The problem is you're not supposed to be in that ball field, win or lose. You're supposed to be over here in God's ball field. You're not supposed to be playing that game. And whenever somebody whines to me about, I'm I'm so depressed and I'm so this, it's because you're stuck. You haven't got out of that childhood dream that you were going to be this person when you grew up. And everybody's going to look at you and feel better about you. Everybody's going to come by your house and pat you on the back and say, oh boy, you really made it. Swell there, big guy, big girl. You really did good for yourself. Look at your children. Look at your yard. Look at your pets. Look at your bank account. Look at, oh, look, look how pretty you are. Oh my goodness gracious. Have you been dieting? You know, oh, look at all this stuff that you You should just feel great about yourself, Right? You should just feel, look at all the proof I just gave you as to why you should feel great about yourself. Not one of them had to do with Christ. Not one of them. That's your problem. If you feel like crap after all this teaching, something's wrong in you. And it's that thing I just pointed out. You're still on the wrong treadmill. You're still comparing yourself to your neighbors. Stop hanging around with your neighbors. They don't give a crap about Christ. What do you expect from them other than to get sucked into their disgusting little world where they all want to be little gods and they secretly want to dominate you? They secretly want to dominate you. And you're a fool if you think otherwise. Oh, no, they're sweethearts. Oh, no, that's my best bud from high school. Yeah, your best bud wants to dominate you. That's the human flesh. So... Stop it. Stop worrying about being better. Honestly, it's not about being better. It's about being you in Christ. It's about Christ being better. All right, get back to our primary course of study, Proverbs 17.5, where we started this thing where someone's obviously trying to be better. Proverbs 17, verse 5. Someone's trying to exert themselves, Right? Always the case with the human flesh. Always someone trying to be better. You know? Always a pee contest. Proverbs 17, 5. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker, he who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Okay. While this passage speaks broadly about both unbelievers and believers, We've been focusing our attention on what it means specifically to believers. Now, for example, this came up on Thursday. Up here on the board, what is punishment? Okay, so if I'm going to get punished, if I'm going to end up, (laughs) look, take all that thing we just laughed about, right? Somebody who's invested in that awfulness, even as a believer. What's the punishment? God says you will be punished. If you're in that economy, if you're functioning in there, you're going to get punished. It's going to be punishing. Maybe that's the better way to think about it. Remaining in that environment is punishing. It's like, hey, let's, for fun, let's all jump, jump in an industrial-sized dryer and turn it on, see what happens. 
That's what you're doing when you jump into that fray. Brrr, and just get banged around. It's punishing. Just don't jump in. Anyways, what is punishment? We don't get to enjoy life the way God intended if we are disjoint with his will. Our punishment is visceral, and it cuts to the nerve, right? Um, think about that even as opposed to shorted out nerves, cauterized nerves. Our punishment is visceral. Cuts right to the nerve. A haunting conviction that we are living in sin. It's one of the ways we know that we're believers. Because we, we do want to repent. We do want to confess. We, we are pressed low by understanding that sin, that we're living in sin, let's say. That we're uh, displeasing to God. On Thursday, the Spirit brought up an old friend as a proof point up here on the board. What are you celebrating? And it's, honestly, it's just, a, it's just one of those little questions that does a really nice job of going beneath the covers, right? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, okay, what's punishment? Blah, blah, you know, it's visceral, I feel it. And, you know, and you can kind of like stay up here and kind of, you know, be academic about it. And then the Spirit comes along and says, let's go beneath the covers. Let's see if you really understand this. What are you celebrating? What are you celebrating? God will never allow a believer's ungodly celebration to bring them true happiness, peace, or contentment. A sour conscience is the device he uses. And I'm speaking to believers, right? I'm speaking to believers. There's some of you I'm speaking to right now who just, who knows, maybe in the last year or two or three or something like that, made some, you know, certain decisions, and you expected those decisions to make you happy or to bring you peace, and they just didn't. Because maybe you did it outside of his timing, or maybe you did it illegally, or maybe you did it ungodly. I don't know. Like, there's a ton. I don't want to get into the specifics, but you could probably pick a ton of them. Think of relationships, finances, uh, reputation, work. Think of even just those things. Why is it that those things that you thought were going to bring you happiness haven't? That's a good question. It's because your conscience is spoiling it. You know, you, 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 you fake it till you make it type thing. But your conscience is always there. You might fool everybody around you, but your conscience is still there. And that's the device that God uses to convict you, to move you, um, to listen to him. The simple conclusion is that a saved person is going to be punished. That's a fact. Now, we had a little sidebar on this worth reiterating. What should our attitude be about this? You know, in other words, if we're out, you know, we're celebrating and say, why is God not, why is God not celebrating? Why is God not blessing me with peace and happiness and contentment right now? Why is this not coming together the way I thought it would? Why am I being punished? Because this is punishing right now. What should our attitude be about this? Being punished. Well, it's proof that our Father in Heaven loves us. That's the proof. You wouldn't want a God who says, yeah, let me celebrate with you, you moron. You wouldn't want a God that celebrates with you on stuff that's ungodly. That means he would be weak. I mean, he's our... Think about it. There's nothing in terms of truth and, and, and 
steadfastness and just an anchor, there's nothing beyond God. He's the anchor point. You don't want that one point to waffle. Otherwise, no longer the anchor point. Then what do you have after God? If God was weak and, you know, um, uh, mutable as opposed to immutable, right? He was movable. If he wasn't perfect truth, he was, he was 99% truth. If he was any of those things, how confident would you be even in your own salvation? Now it's like, oh, crap. Now I'm a, there's a 1% chance. I, I'm not making it. Like I believed in vain. You know, he's our anchor. And that was this week's blog, by the way. Hopefully you read it. What should our attitude be about this? It's proof that our Father in heaven loves us. So let's review that awesome passage we read last time. Go to Hebrews 12, verse 1. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Awesome passage. Perfect reminder that we have a Father in heaven that loves us. Loves us enough to do this thing for us. And some of you are under divine judgment right now. Some of you are in... Some of you are... (laughs) Some of you went headlong into that commercial dryer and you're all banged up and you're bruised and you're saying, yeah, that's me, right? And you, and you, and you, can't, look at, you can't look to your left and your right and blame people because that's just you being immature. That's just you just trying to find a scapegoat for your own terrible decisions, let's say. So a lot of this really drives home because God's saying to you, I want you to feel punished. I don't want you to feel all light and airy-headed as if, you know, you know, dimples and daisies type thing. I don't want you to feel great about that decision you made or the one you're still making. I don't want you to feel good about that stuff because then you'd never reorient to me. Hebrews 12.1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when, he re- when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. You see the finality in that? In other words, if you're a believer, if you're one of his children... You will be punished. You will be. You will suffer. You will be chastised. You will be punished. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father uh, does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Oh, You mean if you don't get disciplined, if you're not punished. In other words, if you can run off and make all these horrible decisions, let's say, jump headlong into the commercial dryer, and it's just this big, fluffy, padded pillow thing, and you say, la, 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 right? 
you're not saved. That's exactly what he's saying. You're not saved. God will never ordain that. Ever. He doesn't want you to be all happy and fluffy and lighthearted when you're living in sin. He doesn't want that to be the relationship to sin that you have. If we go back to Romans 1, they gave hearty approval. That's the puffy pillows, right? La, 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 la. Hey, this is great. Yeah, we stand against God, but if we just stay in this little thing and, you know, lollygag a little while, la, 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 let's do, you know, we'll just, it's all fun and games, right? Until hell. But it's all fun and games, see? God doesn't discipline the way them the way he disciplines us. We're believers. And the Bible says he will discipline us. We will be disciplined. So, this last point points out, or this last verse points out something profound up here on the board. Our Father's discipline, if you are not disciplined by God, then you are not his son or daughter. Rather, you are illegitimate, as the word said in Hebrews 12:8, not saved. God punishes his own for the sake of reorientation and recovery. So I guess the good news is, for some of you who are miserable right now, just know that I mean, if, if it, everything is in check otherwise, you're saved. Like, if, in other words, if you have a terrible conscience, I'm not saying an unbeliever can't be miserable, but that's another story. If you have a terrible, if your conscience is haunting you, then chances are that's proof of your salvation. Because he says, I will punish the ones I love. And I will not reward those who go against me. You will reap what you sow. And I'm not mocked. So if he's chastising you the way the Bible lays it out, then chances are you're saved. And that's a good thing. It's a painful reality, <laughs> but it's a good thing. Right? It's no different than when you're a kid and you have a good parent and they punish you, and then years later you say, you know what, thanks for punishing me, because I was going off the deep end there for a while. Thanks for uh, straightening me out, because my brain was whoop, whoop, going somewhere else. God punishes his own for the sake of reorientation and recovery. Therefore, an illegitimate person can celebrate all kinds of things. Think of Romans 1, 18 and forward, like we just read. God might just allow it to some degree for a time. However, for believers, our Father is much more forthcoming, let's say, uh, with immediate judgment. Um, Again, here's the point up here on the board. What are we celebrating? Or what are you celebrating? God will never allow a believer's ungodly celebration to bring them true happiness, peace, or contentment. A sour conscience is the device he uses. See, you can never get that far away from it. You can, you know how you do it. You go, la, la, your conscience is bothering you, and you're like, la, 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 la. And your conscience is just like, and you're like, la, 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 right? You can do that for a little while, and eventually your conscience catches up with you. That's what happens to a believer. If that never happens to you, then you are, as Hebrews 12 just said, an illegitimate son or daughter. And you're not even saved because nothing's chasing you down. You don't have a conscience. Maybe you have a seared conscience at this point. I don't know. The corollary up here is what is punishment? We don't get to enjoy life the way God intended if we are disjoint with his will. Our punishment is visceral, a haunting conviction that we are living in sin. So again, for some of you, and I like that the Spirit's taking this time this morning. For some of you, your misery is that. 
you're under divine punishment. Does that make sense? You're living in a sin, and only God knows what that thing is, but you're miserable because you're living in that sin. You might say, oh, but, you know, when I'm sinning, it's so great. I love it so much, and all I'll just do is just mask, mask the conviction of the conscience with the sin. So I'll just sin more. You know, I'll just, it's like the, the addict, right? I, I need a little bit more of the drug to, to mask out the pain. And he's saying that's not, the, that's not the way to recovery. You don't take more of the drug to mask out the pain. You stop taking the drug, and you go through the pain of what you would call recovery, right, or withdrawal from that life. And that's, if you look at the, the theme of our messages over the last five years or so, so much of it has been get off the train, right? You've been on this dysfunction, this dysfunction junction train for most of your life. It's time to get off. Right? It's, it's time to get off of that train. Get out of it. Not throw more coal in the, in the steam engine. Get off the train. All right, it takes a little while. But to get off the train, that really does mean, hey, listen, tell your ridiculous, moronic, worldly friends you're busy today. Say, I, I, I just don't have time for this. Can't, sorry, man, can't get together today. Tell them. You can be kind about it. You can be tactful about it. But if you ever want to get together, I can talk to you about Jesus. Maybe you do that another day after you cancel your plans or whatever. But you've got to get away from it. You've got to get off the train. You know what I mean? You've got to get off of the train. You've got to get away from that, that momentum that leads you to that continued sin in your life. Because it's that continued sin in your life that makes you miserable. And like I said earlier, oh, I'm so miserable, I'm so, you know. Stop putting the pieces together, right? Why are you hanging around with those people anyways? Because I still have a tie to them. I still want to feel better. I want to feel good in the world. I want to feel good about myself. I'm so tired of that statement. I just want to feel good about myself. You know, sometimes when I go to church, I don't feel good about myself. That's the whole point. If you weren't disoriented, there would be no pain. The only reason is pain is because you're disoriented. Nope, I'm just going to take more drug. I'm going to take. I'm going to just sin a little bit harder until I basically implode, and then I'll come crawling back. To Christ, and uh, you know the you know the dysfunction junction, you know the the cycle, right? It's going to keep going until I literally implode, and there's shrapnel going everywhere. And since I'm a, a a mother or a father or a child or I have family close, everybody just gets shredded in a mace. You know, everybody just gets decimated. Why? Because you just want to persist. And God's saying, "I'm giving you punishment. I gave you." you know, spiritual nerve endings for a reason. I gave you a conscience so you can tell the right, the difference between right and wrong. Raise your hand if you want to be so bold to say you don't know the difference between right and wrong. It takes this long. Honestly, 99.9, I'm 51 years old. 99 plus percent of the time, it's, this, it's that quick. I know exactly it's wrong. 
or I know exactly it's right. As a matter of fact, I don't know about you, but it feels like it's quicker for me to discern that's wrong. Sometimes the right one is like, all right, what's the best decision, right? You might mull it over. You might, uh, you know, it's like some gray area, something like that. But wrong, you know, boom. It literally takes like a millisecond. Oh, that's totally wrong. Your flesh is like, no, it's not. Right? And your buddy or your bum buddy over here is like, hey, throw me another bud. Let's turn it up, man. Right? You know, you know it's wrong. Is that fair? Am I the only one that thinks that way? Like sometimes it's harder to discern what's best, but wrong, easy. Fair enough? Amen? Yeah, it is. It's just, I mean, we're just ridiculous. So we know, we, you know, you just confessed publicly, by the way, so now you're held accountable. You just, <laughs> you just confessed, honestly, openly, with laughter even, that you know the difference between right and wrong, especially wrong, which is sin. So anyways, that's how God punishes you. It's for your own good. Go back to a specific use case here, or a specific case. In our primary passage, go to Proverbs 17.5. I think I've got to pick a spot. Let me see where we're at. Proverbs 17, verse 5. Yeah. Just a couple more points and we'll, we'll take off. Proverbs 17, 5. Again, just elevate your thinking, right? Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker, he who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished, okay? We reap what we sow. That's been the overarching theme. Uh, God loves us believers, so we, we will be punished. Uh, you see the, you know what I'm saying. So just to summarize, before we move on in our chapter, uh, I'm going to grab a principle from a message a, a while back. Up here on the board, respect God's choices. This is from months ago. Months ago, I think. When God makes something, he makes it to suit his purposes perfectly. Romans 9, 20 to 24. Maybe not months ago. Definitely weeks and weeks ago. When God makes something, he makes it to suit his purposes perfectly. Now, before we close, I'd like you to ask you, you to elevate your thinking, like way up, okay? Don't forget what we've been learning, but I mean, like way up. Just big, big picture now. Because we're going to close with some encouragement we can all take home with us. First, uh, I know these messages can be difficult pills to swallow. Some be like, yeah, you could say that again. Like, they are. They're difficult pills to swallow. But just know this one fact, my dear congregants. God loves you. God loves you. You have to know that. That these messages, I mean, look, the reason he ordains ministries like this one is actually a revelation of his love. Right? I mean, look around. You have to be, you have to be pretty, I say this tongue-in-cheek, but you have to be tough to hang in front of this pulpit. Right? There's no, there's no fluff here. There's, and that's a beautiful thing. You don't want fluff because fluff is human. You just want the truth. So he ordains ministries like this as a revelation of his love. And here's the encouragement. We find this love in Holy Scripture. 
like I've always said, it's, you know, it's not me. I'm, I mean, it's not my love. Although I do love you, I'm just more of like a waiter serving up meals from the Bible, right? My job is not to spill it and not to add anything on my way to the table. The beautiful thing about the Word of God is that no matter how easy or difficult the pill is to swallow, it's always filled with love. All these messages, it's, it's all filled with love. I mean, yeah, it's difficult, but it's only difficult because we're disoriented to the truth. We're so uh, conditioned for the world. Most of us are going to go right back out into the world and everybody literally is speaking another language. It's English, but it's a different language. The definitions are all twisted. The conclusions, therefore, are all twisted. What's good is not good. What's bad is, is not bad. Like, everything's backwards. That's what we, we go right out from here, and they're spe literally speaking a different language. And God's saying, come to me, all you are weary of heaven lady, right? Come to me. I'll give you rest. You come to me. I love you. They don't love you. They're trying to dominate you. It's a bunch of fleshes. Oh, sure, they smile at you. They're just trying to dominate you. It's just a form of manipulation, you dummy. They're just using you. Because that's all the human flesh can do. It's use each other, consume each other, devour each other. The beautiful thing about the Word of God is it's always filled with love. Let's uh, read Ephesians 4.11, and then I'll close. Ephesians 4, verse 11. <clears throat> Ephesians 4, verse 11. You literally have to feel like an alien in this world. That's when you know you're sort of getting somewhere. Ephesians 4.11 And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain, until we all attain, to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro, by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we ought to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Therefore, the so-called call to action for us before we depart up here on the board. Seek love for love's sake. Seek love for love's sake. Chew on that. This is where you will find your blessings. Why? It's simple. Love 
is where God is. Seek love for love's sake. This is where you find your blessings because love is where God is. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of studying your word here this morning. Thank you for building us up. Thank you for being so merciful and gracious to us, Father. We know we're undeserving, but it's just another show of your love for us, Father. We just ask your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to the privacy of our own souls, Father. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.